0: Welcome to the Pete on Software Podcast, where we program with passion. This is the podcast that discusses technology, the business side of software,
1: and the tech people that drive our industry. And now, here's your host, Pete Shearer. Hi, and welcome to Episode 5 of the Pete on Software Podcast. I'm recording this on Monday, January 27th, 2014. Today I have my first interview episode, and I'm honored to have Matt Groves on as my first ever guest. Matthew D. Groves is a guy who loves to code. It doesn't matter if it's enterprise EC Sharp apps, cool jQuery stuff, contributing to open source software, or rolling up his sleeves to dig into some PHP. He has been coding professionally ever since he wrote a quick basic point of sale app for his parents' pizza shop back in the 90s. He currently works remotely for the Zimbra product team and loves spending time with his wife and two kids, watching the Cincinnati Reds, and getting involved in the developer community. He is the author of AOPN.net, published by Manning, and also a Microsoft MVP. And now, the interview. Hi, Matt. How are you doing?
0: Hi, Pete. I'm doing great on this really cold January day.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Glad to be inside. So uh, thanks for being on my show.
0: Well, thanks for having me.
1: I appreciate it. Thanks. So how did you get to become a programmer? Like, why is this what you do?
0: Well, it's uh, you know it's a long story, but I suspect it's like many other people. Uh uh, my dad did some punch card programming in the 70s, and so he brought home a TRS-80 one day, and taught me a little bit of BASIC. And uh, you know, I was eight years old or something like that, and I really enjoyed doing it. And I very quickly surpassed his expertise in BASIC, and I sort of became the the computer guy of my uh, my extended family. Uh, And so, uh, you know, I just uh, decided that I wanted to be a programmer. I kept tinkering. I did an internship. I went to college, et cetera. And uh, and here I am today.
1: Yeah, that's a a, a lot like my story, actually, uh, except my dad wasn't a programmer, but uh, he was interested and had computers in the house and kind of similar thing. Um, So, you know, I noticed from your bio, you know, you started with some quick basic stuff on there, I believe. And, you know, you're obviously all the way where you are now. So how do you stay current? How do you make sure that you always know what's going on now in the industry?
0: Yeah, again, probably not too different. I I read a lot of uh, Twitter. I follow a lot of people on Twitter, and I I make it a point to follow a pretty diverse crowd on Twitter, not just .NET or C Sharp, but uh, people from all types of uh, technology backgrounds. I read uh, read a few blogs. I also go to a ton of conferences uh, and user groups, uh, you know, to speak, often cases, but also just to attend. And uh, Watch uh, other speakers present on topics that are t- sometimes outside uh my day to day work, so not just other technologies like Java or Ruby, but also just different areas uh design uh, economics mm-hmm. and I uh, try to find something that I can apply um you know maybe ninety nine percent of it is not applicable, but for every one percent I can get, I feel like that's a gain
1: oh that yeah that's great I, that was great i do uh it is a lot like I do, and I definitely can uh, relate to going and attending sessions and just hoping to find one little thing that you can apply. Yeah. You should be able to apply something out of anything. Every person could teach you something. So Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, I like that. So, you know, as we talked about a little bit in your bio, you wrote a book, uh, AOP for .NET. And so tell me a little bit about what is aspect-oriented programming?
0: Yeah, uh, AOP is essentially... It's basically a way to clean up the clutter caused by cross-cutting concerns in your code. It's something that's complementary to object-oriented programming, but it tackles problems in a way that plain object-oriented programming really can't do. Uh, Just a little history. It was uh, first developed at Xerox PARC in the late 90s and came out of a research effort. These guys were uh, analyzing large object-oriented programming projects, trying to figure out some of the root causes of bugs and defects. And out of that came this uh, whole idea of of AOP and writing aspects.
1: Okay, um, so you know, there's some words we we've kind of thrown in there. You heard I heard cross-cutting concerns, uh, aspects, and there's some other words that came up. Uh, I'm seeing in your book, advice, yeah. tangling, scattering. So what are some of those things? What do they mean? Yeah, how do they affect us? Why are they bad or why are they good? Depending on which word they are.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the one of the main issues I saw when I first started to write this book, and I was doing a lot of presenting uh, and blogging about about AOP. And one of the issues I came across was that there's a lot of academic language uh, involved in describing AOP, and I wanted to write a book to uh, sort of cut through that. Uh, because, you know, AOP has a very academic background, and I wanted to write a book that was a little more accessible. Um, you know, but there are some terms that you do need to know to understand AOP, or at least get started with it. And the first one there is cross-cutting concerns, which uh, I mentioned already. And cross-cutting concerns is really just a way to describe functionality in a piece of software that has uh, usefulness across many different areas of that software. So across various tiers within individual tiers. So just as an example, uh, if you have a three-tier application, so it's a UI, maybe a business logic layer, and then maybe a data layer, persistence layer. In each one of those layers, you probably want to do some sort of logging. So the concern of logging cuts across all those different layers of your application. Mm -hmm. And even within those layers, you would want to have logging across various parts of the UI or various parts of the business logic. So it's a piece of functionality that can that can be useful across many different parts of an application. Uh, and, the, and the reason this came about, it goes back to that research paper, and they were analyzing these large programs, and you know they found lots of different problems, but one of them they really zeroed in on was this uh, phenomenon of tangling and scattering. So the idea of tangling was that you'd have a, let's say, a business module Which is a class, and it has several methods in it. And all these methods, you know, they uh, are very cohesive. They are following single responsibility principle. uh, They're well written, and so on. But those aren't. That's not the code that makes it into production. Uh, What makes it into production is that same piece of code, but you'd add logging to it. So in a method to say, get me, return me the uh, all the nearby car dealerships. Well, that method would maybe call a web service or call some sort of data repository. But you'd also have to add in some logging there. Say uh, at the beginning, uh, when this method was called, uh, who called this method, uh, what parameters were passed in. And then when the method was done, you'd have to log, well, it took this long to run, and this was the return value and so on. So you'd have this logging code at the beginning and logging code at the end, and it would get tangled up with the actual business of this module. So that was the tangling that they identified.
1: Okay, so then do you have to, you know, am I? Am, is this just a way for me to write my code differently, or is there something that, what makes it, what makes my code, you know, kind of follow AOP then?
0: Right. So the, the idea was if if have identify this tangling, um, and we see this tangling takes place in multiple places, you know, uh, dozens of classes and hundreds of methods, it's sort of scattered around there. But what we'd rather do is take out that code. Let's call it the red code of the logging. And let's call the, the main logic the green code. We take that red code and put it into its own class and somehow reuse it across those methods so that we have the green code all by itself and the red code all by itself. And so the way to uh, address this is by writing an aspect. So the aspect is a class that can hold that red code that says, okay, at the beginning of the method, log, at the end of the method, log. And then we tell our, uh, our tool where to apply those aspects. And that process of combining them together is called weaving. So there's two more of, of your terms there weaving and, and aspect.
1: Okay. So is this, uh, so you said you put this in another class. So is it uh, injected in there somehow or is it like, is it a compiler trick? Like, how does that all work?
0: Yeah, that depends on, on the tool. So uh, the weaving process can take a couple different forms. The most common ones is uh, compile time weaving. So it actually, with PostSharp, for instance, you define an aspect, which is a class, but it's also an attribute. And you could place the attribute on whatever methods you want to place it on. And then it would compile as normal. But then the PostSharp program would take over. It's called a post compiler because it runs after your compiler. And it sees where you put those attributes. And then it modifies the code based on the aspect that you wrote. So it actually manipulates the IL after you've compiled it. So if you went and decompiled that program, it would look different than what you uh, first wrote. So it actually manipulates the IL. But there's another way to do it, which is runtime weaving. It won't actually modify your code, but what it will do is it'll actually generate proxy classes at runtime. So classes, again, that you didn't write, it'll generate classes for you based on the aspect that you wrote. And they will just intercept any calls to that object and take care of the logging. So in either case, you have all the aspect code over by itself, and you have uh, the business module code by itself, and you can reuse them, and you don't have the mixture of tangling of spaghetti code
1: that you had before. So does PostSharp do uh, them both both of those ways, or is that just configuration, or is that just how some different frameworks work?
0: Yeah, PostSharp is a uh, post-compiler, so it's just at the IL manipulation level. Mm-hmm. And the most popular one at the runtime level, at least by my estimation, the one I focus on in the book is called Castle Dynamic Proxy.
1: Okay. So one of the things that, you know, you mentioned logging, which almost every AOP demo I've seen involves logging. Uh, maybe something with error handling or some kind of bounce checking or something maybe, but Sure. What's, what are some of the other usages that are really good candidates for something that might be, uh, if someone looks at their code, and what's a smell that they might see they might be able to pull out to an aspect? Yeah.
0: yeah, logging and error handling are sort of the low-hanging fruit. It's like the 101 level of AOP, uh, and the, there's a good reason for this. There, you get a lot of value for not much effort, and it's relatively easy to demonstrate. But there are lots of cross-cutting concerns that you can apply AOP to, and I cover uh, several of these in the book with some real examples. But um, one I use for uh, at my full-time job is uh, in our product, we have a caching aspect. So typically with caching, you want to perform a check to see if a value is in the cache. Mm-hmm. If so, retrieve that value. If not, run the method and then store the value in the cache. So that can be a very repetitive pattern that you can use you know, in a uh, business logic layer or even a UI layer or maybe even a data layer. So it's code that you're going to type over and over again. It's very, very similar. Uh, but you can refactor that into an aspect and just have it in one class and apply that to wherever you need to use caching.
1: Oh yeah, that's okay. That makes sense. Um, what about you know? So C sharp and Java or have the mature frameworks you mentioned? You know, like AOP, uh, like PostSharp. But what about dynamic languages like Ruby or Python or JavaScript, anything like that? Where you know some of the, this maybe obviously wouldn't be the the compile time. Or the post-compiler IL stuff, but you know some of the dynamic weaving uh, that you mentioned that the Castle product does. Are there frameworks to do that for there? Do people do that in those languages? Is it necessary?
0: From from what I've seen, there are some AOP frameworks in those languages. Actually, in fact, Python has a feature called decorators built right into the language, and that in fact is basically the same thing as AOP. So it's kind of a first-class citizen in that language. Okay. Ruby and JavaScript, there are some frameworks that do exist. But in those languages, there are some easier ways to do some of the stuff that uh, AOP frameworks for C# and Java that they already do. You know, they're interpreted languages; they're more dynamic, and uh, you know, types are looser in in those languages as well. So it's easier to write your own stuff, so you you have less need of a framework. Uh, But a framework can still help; they do exist in those languages, but it's not as necessary as it is for C# and Java.
1: Okay, Uh, what kind of projects? Are there anywhere, any kind of projects where AOP wouldn't be a good fit? Like, um, you know, does it make sense in web apps? Does it make sense in Windows apps? Does it make sense on Windows phone apps? Does it make sense on a console app? Does it not make sense in a service? Like, is there any place where it doesn't make sense, or is this something you can apply just about any project you can imagine?
0: When I think of AOP, it's, uh, it's certainly based on tools, but it's also, you can think of it as a, sort of a way to do advanced design patterns. And so, if you could, you know, reask the question: Are there any types of projects where design patterns wouldn't be a good fit? Well, I'd say no. It could, it's pretty much useful anywhere. But but just like any tool, it's probably a good idea to uh, sort of uh, ease in the AOP. You know, don't uh, jump in a uh, cannonball style. You know, if if your team's not comfortable with it, maybe find something small like logging, something easy that you can use and demonstrate uh, until the team's comfortable, and then demonstrate the value of AOP. And then keep building from there. Um, and I and I'd say, you know, in terms of refactoring and clean code, uh, you know, going to AOP maybe isn't the lowest hanging fruit there. You may want to start with testing and separation of concerns and SOLID principle. You know, focus on those things first, and come to AOP when you hit a you know barrier that you really can't do something with plain
1: object oriented programming. So is that what you might think would be a biggest obstacle into getting AOP into an organization? Maybe some some non-clean code, some non-solid code? Or do you see other barriers that people might, they're like, yeah, this sounds great. I want to check this out. I want to get Matt's book. You know, what are they going to run into when they're trying to make this happen?
0: Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say not clean code will be a barrier. In fact, uh, PostSharp, uh, so one of the strengths of PostSharp is that you can use it with static and private types and things that may not be easily testable. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Castle, you're probably going to need to have some cleaner code to really get the most value out of that. The biggest obstacles I see with AOP is that um, the one place I've had a problem getting it accepted, it was it was about licensing. You know, people have some strange opinions about licensing. Uh, when it comes to, they don't want to use open source or the opposite in of the spectrum, they don't want to pay anything for something. Um, and it also kind of goes back to, I think, your last episode where you talked about the not invented here syndrome mm-hmm. is that AOP kind of appears to be a little bit of magic. And since it wasn't invented here, people are kind of afraid of what they don't understand. Um, but, but in actuality, AOP is probably already in your organization. Uh, if you use ASP.NET, for instance, chances are you're probably already using AOP. It's just not called that. If you've used uh, ASP.NET MVC Action Filters, yep. that is, that is, that is exactly, almost exactly the same thing as AOP. Or an HTTP module, same sort of thing. If you use Unity, as a container for your project, there's an interception framework available there for unity, so those things are already existing there, and they already have AOP features, so chances are you're already comfortable with them, but some of the language like I said for the language around AOP makes it sound as if it 's something way more complex and academic when it's really not
1: okay, and that kind of leads me into you mentioned this a little bit earlier about one of the the aims in one of the aims of your book was to take this thing which was very academic in nature. Taken from Xerox, like it seems like all of our good ideas are.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know.
1: Uh, and, and you try to make that a little more accessible. So tell me a little bit about your book. Who published it? Where can I get it? What's going on with that?
0: Sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's called AOPN.net, and it's published through Manning Books. And I think it was published about midway through last year. Uh, you can go to my uh, blog site, crosscuttingconcerns.com, and there's a link there for you to go and check it out. Or you can just go to manning.com slash groves. And, uh, you can check out, look for the book there. And I actually have a coupon code if you like for your listeners.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I like, I like coupons.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 42% off. Just enter the code, uh, one, two, M as in Mike, P as in Papa, two, five. And that'll give you uh, a nice little price break
1: on the book there. Excellent. So everyone, you should get that. You have no reasons now. Uh, Matt has <laughs> reduced all your reasons to none. Go check it out. So I, I happened to notice when I was thumbing through my copy that, uh, Phil Hack wrote the forward to your book. Just curious personal question, how did you get him to do that? Was that a publisher thing? Do you know him or how did that happen?
0: <laughs> well, it was uh it was kinda of, it's kinda of funny. So as I was nearing the end of writing the book, we started working on what's called the front matter of the book, which is like the introduction, the preface, the acknowledgments, things like that. And I hadn't even thought about a foreword, but they mentioned that, you know, do you want to put a forward in this book and who do you want to write it? So I hadn't even thought about it, but so I sat down and really, really went through the process of thinking, do I want someone to write a forward and who do I want to write it? And I've been honored to, to know and get to work with a lot of really tremendous people in the developer community. So there are some people that I would love to write a forward, but I really had to narrow it down to someone who would actually make sense for this particular book, for this topic. And so I did that and there was a very, very short list of people, maybe like three people and a Phil hack was one of those people. And I thought I would just take a shot and ask him. And if he said no, and if no one said they wanted to do a forward, then I would just go without a forward. But I was uh, very much surprised. Uh, he very kindly agreed to do a forward. You know, he was on the MVC team, mm-hmm. and I mentioned action filters before. I thought it was a perfect fit. And he's done at least one open source project using PostSharp. Uh, you know, he's got some incredible credentials. We all are familiar with with Hack. He's been an author on s- uh, several of my favorite tech books. And so I just emailed him just out of the blue and asked him to do it. And he said, sure. And, and actually, unknown to me, he was already involved in reviewing the book. So the oh, way wow. Manning works, I don't know who the reviewers are. They're sort of anonymous. It's sort of a double blind there. Mm-hmm. And it just worked out nicely. So the day he agreed to write the foreword for the book, I was just so giddy. I just had a big smile on my face all day. But I really couldn't tell anyone. Uh, you It know,
1: wasn't uh, public knowledge at that time. I was just so happy that day. That's awesome. So you talked about, you know, prepping some of the front matter. How yeah. about the, uh, the so called Archduke of Programmer Land there on the front? <laughs> you know, Manning has some of the, some characters are kind of, they're all kind of in that same style. Did you get yeah. to pick one of those out of a catalog of ones or do they just stick you with, hey, we think AOP deserves the Archduke of Programmer Land? <laughs> Interestingly enough, AOP, I just caught that actually. I don't know if the person that oh. came up with that <laughs> named him that on purpose uh. or not.
0: Yeah. So Manning has all these unique pictures of people on their covers. And if you, if you get the book, there's a little uh, blurb in the beginning that gives you more detail. But I think they all come from this uh, 19th century collection of uh, costumes of people of various professions and ethnicities. And the way it worked for me, I've only done one book, so I'm not sure how it works for everyone else, but uh, they just presented me with three different options and I picked the one I liked the best. The only reason I thought this guy made sense was that. He has what looks to be a knife in his belt. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking with cross-cutting concerns, it kind of fit thematically. So, uh, you know, it's not, it's kind of a tenuous, uh, theme there, but I thought I'd go with that. And as far as the name, Archduke of Programmerland, I actually didn't come up with, come up with that name. A friend of mine here in Columbus, Mark Greenway, uh, actually dubbed him that to match the acronym, as you just discovered, AOP, Archduke of Programmerland. So. That's the whole. I just, I just the name thought I like the name, so I thought I'd stick with it.
1: Nice. Well, Matt, uh, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. And thanks for letting everybody know a little bit more about AOP.
0: Thanks for having me on, Pete.
1: All right. Thanks. All right. My very sincere thanks again to Matt Groves for coming on and being the very first Pete on Software podcast interview guest and my guinea pig. You can find his blog at crosscuttingconcerns.com. He's on Twitter as at M Groves. And his book is at slash Groves. And remember, you can get 42% off if you use the promo code 12MP25. As always, you can find me on Twitter as at Pete on software at my blog, PeteOnSoftware.com, where you can contact me through my About page or find the show notes through the Podcast tab. Thanks for listening. <laughs>